So what do you think about leadership these days? Are you leery of putting any hope in someone of authority to make things better around you? Has the seemingly continuous revelations of scandal in politics, economics, and or religion jaded you from trust in any form of leadership? What would it take for a leader to be worthy of your trust? We are in the book of Hebrews, and although it was not written directly to us, it is addressed to people who are struggling in their faith. Doubting the leader they had trusted in, Jesus, when in the face of difficulty or persecution, it would be easier to walk away from him as then their difficulty would walk away too. In case you have not tracked with us in the last couple of weeks, a quick synopsis. The likely context is that Hebrews was written primarily to Jewish Christians who have persevered in their loyalty to Jesus under persecution the first time, the first wave. But as another wave of difficulty threatens, their faith in Jesus is in danger, um, creating a, a crisis of belief. They could go back to Judaism because it was protected under Roman rule, and they would be safe, or stick with Jesus, and as Christ followers put themselves again in harm's way, the potential for more shame, loss of property, physical harm, what would you choose? I mean, really, what would you choose? Think about where you live. How much is invested in your home, your job? Would you give it up for Jesus? While our circumstances may be different, I regularly see stories of followers of Jesus being put to the test. And under pressure, some walk away from Jesus. From their perspective, he didn't come through for them. They didn't get the answer to prayer they were hoping for, the relief from their pain, the, the getting of their prize, the job, the girl, the success. They didn't experience the best life they had imagined. And so they conclude, Jesus must be to blame. Jesus in the Christian way is not to be trusted. On the other hand, I've seen followers of Jesus experience intense difficulty, sometimes disappointments and setbacks and wave after wave, and yet their resolve, instead of growing weaker, intensifies as they attest to the goodness of God and the reality of his faithfulness in their circumstances. Why the difference? Well, perhaps it's where you focus. In chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, the writer has made believers look, not at their circumstances, but at the one he has compelled them to, to trust in the midst of their circumstances, the divine Son of God who remarkably became one of us, Jesus. And today, we are invited to look at him again. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. As he continues, the writer to the Hebrews reminds his hearers and reminds us that believers share in a heavenly calling. The word share means to be a partaker, and it is used several times in the book of Hebrews, almost exclusively in the New Testament, drawing their attention to the fact that they are participants in something rather amazing. We share in something not originating from here, but from God himself. This heavenly calling, as he puts it, refers to the great salvation that has been accomplished in Jesus. And building on what he has already written, he says, Jesus is the apostle, that is, the messenger, the one through whom God has spoken in these last days, the complete and final revelation of God. 
We are also told that Jesus is the high priest, the one who has eliminated our barrier to God and destroyed the enemies of death and the devil by taking care of our sins. All of this has been explained in chapters one and two as the author compared Jesus to angels. In chapter three, verse two, we are introduced to another comparison to give more weight to the case that Jesus is worthy of our trust. Comparison is the rhetorical device the writer of the Hebrews uses with great skill. You are thinking of going back to Judaism? Well, let me show you how foolish that would be. The Bible Project lays this out in simplistic form. In chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is compared to the angels, prominent in Judaism. In chapters 5 to 7, Jesus is compared to the priests of Judaism. In chapters 8 to 10, Jesus is compared to the sacrifices and the covenant of Judaism. And then he wraps things up with a final exhortation or appeal in chapters 11 to 13. What we are looking at today in chapters 3 and 4, Jesus is compared to the great leader of Judaism, Moses. Now you may be thinking, how relevant could this be to me? It's not like I'm thinking about Moses and his leadership, but they were, and their bent to do so is also an illustration of we, what we are prone to do. As they find themselves in difficulty, they look for a rescue out of their circumstances that leads to a better life. We do the same all the time. In the midst of a mess, what we theologically call the fall, we look for a rescue theologically called redemption, that leads to a better life, theologically called restoration. And here's the thing. In God's plan of salvation, the rescue is in Jesus, and the best life, present and future, the restoration, if you will, is also in Jesus. But too often in our plans, we, we substitute. Our plan of salvation is, I mean, fill in the blank. The girl and a life together with her. It's the money from a successful business and the life of choices that come with it. It's the education and a life of social respect that comes with the position of that. It's the political leader and the reform he will bring. I mean, you can go on and on and on and from this lens see how we substitute so many things for Jesus. And it's not that some of these things are necessarily bad, but we ask too much of them. They are not ultimate solutions, and Jesus is. For the Jewish Christians in the situation they are in, the substitute is Judaism, represented by the greatest figurehead of their tradition, the leader Moses. And the writer to the Hebrews takes the best of Judaism to show that Jesus is better. You can take any of your substitutes, and in the big picture, I'm confident you'll find, in comparison, Jesus is also better. Both Jesus and Moses were faithful. And this is also an important word as you journey through Hebrews. Both are faithful, but for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Drawing from Old Testament imagery, the people of God are referred to as part of a house Moses had been part of that house, but Jesus is the builder of it. After all, God is the builder of all things, and as we have seen so explicitly in Hebrews, Jesus is God. And in light of the glory of God, like the glory of Moses is nothing. Who do you want to look to as your leader? Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So more comparison. Moses was a servant of God. Jesus is God's son. And as a servant, Moses was testifying to things that were to be spoken later. Hebrews 1 tells us this is especially fulfilled in Jesus. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Moses was pointing to the greater coming one to whom they should put their trust in, Jesus. And as they continue to do that with confidence, even boasting in their hope, the believers can know that they are part of God's house too. To the Jews who were opposing his ministry, Jesus had said this, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. The writer to the Hebrews isn't trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and Moses, but to show how Moses, the lesser, leads to Jesus, the greater. And something that was common to both was faithfulness. Jesus was faithful. Moses was faithful. The lingering question for believers then and for you and I today, will we be faithful? In a sense of irony, the writer now quotes Psalm 95, which recounts how the people of Israel, with Moses as their leader, didn't follow their leader. The Jewish Christians being written to may be tempted to idolize Moses, but they are the children of those who wanted to kill Moses. Verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. One of Israel's primary stories in the shaping of their identity was the Exodus story in which they were led by Moses. The Old Testament does not hold back in showing us the reality of the difficulty God's people experienced in this journey from slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land and how that first generation failed to walk rightly with God in that journey right up to the doorstep of God's great intention for them. In the book of Exodus, God performed 10 miraculous plagues in order to get Pharaoh to release his reluctant grip on Israel. And when Pharaoh changed his mind and went after Israel, who, who seemed to be cornered at the Red Sea, well, God performed this most extraordinary miracle. The sea split. The nation, led by Moses, walked through on dry land. And having reached the other side, they watched as Pharaoh and his army, chasing after them, were swallowed up by the waters. It was cause for a great celebration. They erupt in song and dance. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. But the enthusiasm doesn't last too long. Israel travels another three days into the wilderness and find no water. And when they did at a place called Merah, it is bitter, and they complain against the Lord. Moses throws the log into the water. It becomes sweet, and then shortly thereafter, they get to a place called Elam, where there are 12 springs of water, and they are refreshed. 
Soon thereafter, they are hungry and grumble against the Lord. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. And God hears their grumbling. He gives them meat at night as he rains quail on them and bread in the morning in the form of a dew-like substance they call manna, which would be a daily provision for them. As they journey further, they again experience thirst in the wilderness. And instead of recalling how God had provided for them before, once again, they grumble against Moses and against God. Why did you bring us here out of Egypt? To kill us? It is here at that place they would call Massa, meaning testing, and Meribah, meaning grumbling, that God instructs Moses to strike a rock, and he does, as he does it, water for the people comes gushing out. Psalm 95 refers in particular to this incident because it is typical of Israel's posture of unbelief, something we are to check within ourselves. When the going gets difficult, do I trust God? God had a land for the Israelites, a place of rest, as he does for us, promised, but they fail to enter in because they do not believe. And this is to serve as a warning to us. You probably know the story. It's detailed in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. When Israel, Israel arrive at Kadesh Barnea and the gateway to the promised land, by God's instructions, they send in 12 spies into the land to check it out. Now, all of the spies return and, and they agree. This is an incredible place. They bring back, back prom, pomegranates and figs and a, a single cluster of grapes so big they had to bring it hanging on a pole. And they report. As you can see by these fruits, the land is amazing, but, but, the people are strong. The cities are fortified. They are bigger than us, stronger than us. We can't do it. Now, two of the spies, Caleb in particular, quieted the people. Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Another of the spies, Joshua, is in agreement. They know it's not about the logistics. It's about who is your God. It's not about the greatness of the problem, but about the greatness of the one who has promised. With God's help, we can do it. But the unbelief of the 10 wins out over the faith of the two. And we read, then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Later, the, they wanted to stone Moses. You have to wonder what the people were expecting when they arrived at the promised land. It's not that the land wasn't good. It was exactly as God had said, a land flowing with milk and honey. So what was the issue? They would have to fight to possess it. Maybe they wanted it to be easy without difficulty. They would have to risk. They would have to step into difficulty. They would have to trust in someone bigger than themselves. They would have to believe God. When normal odds say, you don't have a chance. What is your expectation of Christianity? Is it harder than you thought? I think we have done often a great disservice to people in the way we introduce them to Christ. Oh, Jesus will fix this for you. Everything will be better. And it's not like Jesus doesn't change our circumstances for good, but we shouldn't come to Christ because of what he can give us. 
but because of who he is. Just like you shouldn't marry for money, you don't enter into a relationship with Jesus because of what you can get from him. Your hope for a life without trouble may be misplaced. For the Christians that Hebrews is written to, it is because of their faith that they have experienced trouble and they are facing it once again and they are tempted as the children of Israel so long ago as we are today towards unbelief. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. How we respond to difficulty, to temptation, reveals something about our hearts. In context here, to, to harden your heart is something you do as a response to God's word. If or when you hear his voice, you are in a place of decision, and to listen is to obey. When you are a parent, you get this. You're raising your kids, and you have these moments when you say to them, Listen to me! You're not communicating to them how they need to hear the sound waves traveling in the air as it is. 332 meters per second. No, what you mean is, I want you to obey what you have heard. In scripture, the heart is central to who we are. It includes our thinking, our will and emotions. To harden your heart is to become unresponsive to God and his word, which are inseparable. It is to disobey. And we are being told here that we are responsible for the condition of our hearts. This is the second of five warning passages in Hebrews. From the wilderness story of Israel as our example, how we tend or how we do not tend our hearts has grave consequences. Jump down to verse 16 with me. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That generation of Israelites who did not trust God never entered into what God had for them. God would not allow it. And the children who they feared would become prey did enter. There is a promised land that we are called to enter into. Some of that is for now. Some of it is for the future. Think of all that God has promised in his great salvation. We'll have more on that next week, but know it has everything to do with Jesus. The Hebrews are tempted to abandon as we are. Today, do not harden your hearts. Hardening is typically a process over time. When you pour wet cement, it can be shaped and put into position, but the longer the clock ticks, the less time you have before the cement is settled and in its place is determined. We trend, we, we develop practices and mindsets, and they become patterns that shape us, ways of thinking that engrave themselves so that our dispositions for good or bad become entrenched. Israel had developed a pattern. In unbelief, they grumbled at Merah. In unbelief, they grumbled at Massa and Meribah. And when they got to Kadesh Barnea at the Promised Land's door, they did what they do and grumbled in unbelief turning their backs on the God who wanted to lead them to what would have been the best for them. There is an urgency for us to what the writer is saying today. Do something about your heart today. You can't rest on something God did in your life a while ago. Like those who left Egypt and experienced all his miracles, it's not how you start, it's where are you today? Verse 12. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In Hebrews so far, we have been given a great confidence. Our leader is Jesus, greater and more glorious than Moses. He is the creator and sustainer of the world. He's the son of God. He has been faithful to bring about a great salvation as our merciful and faithful high priest. He came for us. We can have confidence in his leadership. And so we should also be careful not to reject his leadership. Take care, brothers and sisters. Don't let an evil heart of unbelief find a place. Don't let evil of unbelief find a place in your heart. Don't let your heart, yourself be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The problem with deceit is that you don't think you're a candidate for deceit. Have you ever wondered why in the prayer that Jesus taught us, he found it important for us to say, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil? We are always candidates for temptation and the great sin of trusting in something other than our God. Carelessness puts us in danger, but Lord willing, there, there's always a recourse to interrupt the process of hardening, repentance, honesty with God, revenging disobedience with obedience. But in carefulness, the best way is to prevent. First, there needs to be a, like a personal application in our lives to stimulate faith and obedience. But the author here chooses to emphasize this. You have got to be in community. You heard what he said, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Outside of community, we are especially vulnerable. Pastor James Emery White said something that I have witnessed over and over again. First people stop belonging, then they stop believing. We need to be in community, belong to a church, be part of a group or class where you can know others and be known by them. And in that, we need to be in a certain type of community, one in which we exhort, we push one another to pursue Jesus together so that we can have healthy hearts. Hearts that see Jesus for who he is and believe. In those kind of relationships with other Christians, we ask each other, where are you having, where are you having trouble trusting God today? And then we speak faith into doubt. We find times to worship, considering bringing to mind the greatness of God, the person of Jesus, and how great a salvation we have. Through worship, we reset our affections on Jesus. In community, we pray for one another and together experience the presence of Jesus and the, and the help of Jesus as we see his answers to prayer over time, building our faith to trust him for more. And in community, we support one another as we, as we each go through our difficulties at different times. And, and there we remind each other how we have seen God at work in faithfulness in the past not only in the stories of scripture, but also our own personal stories too. We will not be like Israel who failed to remember the great things God has done. In community, we choose to speak words of trust like Caleb and Joshua. With God's help, we can do it. You can grow. You can overcome. You have gifts. God can use you. You can reach your neighbor. Together, we can see more followers of Jesus. We can develop healthy churches. We can persevere. We can bring glory to God and blessing to our city and our world, causing it to flourish with God's help.
as he leads, as you and I trust in him. In the same way Israel needed God's help, so we need God's help in keeping our heart in the right place. Israel would never possess the land without God's help. You and I can't walk the Christian life in our own strength. The difficulties are too big. The challenges will, will swallow us up. But we can be confident God will help us to succeed. The question and exhortation we are left with is, will I trust him? Will you trust him to do so? Be careful to be confident in him. Trust your great leader, Jesus, and then do your part. He will surely do his.